You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we are in Psalm 51 as we continue our journey through the Psalms. It's been uh, such a wonderful time so far, and we are only on Psalm well, 51, and we've got a, a long way to go yet. So let's jump straight into this tonight. The subscript says, For the music director, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this gives us the historical context for the psalm. I actually quite enjoy it when the psalms have the historical context as part of the title. It allows you just to go back and understand what is happening. Now, when you mention the name Bathsheba, most people know this episode from 2 Samuel 11. Unfortunately, Bathsheba is the one that I think actually usually gets a bad rap. But as far as I can see, and as far as the psalm says, the fault was with David. He was the king of Israel at this time. So let's get into this psalm and have a look. But you know the story. Uh, He was watching her from his rooftop. He propositioned her, or considering he was the king, he ordered her, and she would not be able to refuse in some respects. And this ended up, obviously, in the death of her husband, Uriah, the Hittite, who was a faithful servant of David. So this was a sin that had entangled David, brought him to that sort of pit that we've seen he expresses so often in these psalms. And it went on for a long time before he wrote this psalm. And we looked at another psalm of David, Psalm 32, that is kind of like a continuation of this psalm, in the, all about the blessings of forgiveness. You remember we studied that a while back, but now we're going to look at his confession. So this is a penitential psalm, they call it. That means a psalm of repentance. To me, it's very much like the Old Testament equivalent of 1 John 1, 9. You remember that verse, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Well, this is the Old Testament equivalent of that. It's a model of confession, and because of that, it has been so popular with God's people over the years. And it's popular because we all sin so often that we need to confess frequently. And this psalm is a help and a comfort to us all in those times. From personal experience, I know many times I've sat with Psalm 51 and prayed through in a confessionary stance, in a penitential way, going through this psalm. And I've been ministered to by this psalm many times, so I hope we can experience some of that tonight. So let's read the first four verses. Be gracious to me, God according to your faithfulness. According to the greatness of your compassion, wipe out my wrongdoings, wash me thoroughly from my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my wrongdoings, and my sin is constantly before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. So that first verse there is such a famous verse. And if you just indulge my sort of fascination now with historical links, I'm going to go through a few of these with you because Psalm 51 pops up so many times in history. I know I've told you this illustration before, the illustration of Lady Jane Grey. If you'll just permit me, I'm going to do it again. Every time I go back to study this amazing young woman's life, I find something new that just fascinates me. So let me give you the story and you'll see the link to Psalm 51 as we go through. So Lady Jane Grey was the famous teenage queen of England. She ruled for nine days. It was going back into the Tudor times when Henry VIII died. He passed the throne to his son Edward. Edward was favourable to the Reformation that was taking root across the world at that time. However, he was a sickly child and he died young. But before he died, he amended his will so that his cousin, Lady Jane, would, his first cousin once removed, would take the throne rather than Mary, who was really was going to be the legitimate heir because she was heavily Catholic at this time. So you can see the manoeuvring that was going on there. But Lady Jane was 16 when all this was going on and she did not want to take the throne, but she was forced into it. A little bit of background about Lady Jane. When she was nine, she was sent away to, quote, learn the ways of the highest. And this is just fascinating. In the providence of God, for two years, she found herself in the London residence of a true Christian believer, in fact, none other than Catherine Parr, who was one of the widows of Henry, who had died in 1547. And they had a great relationship, and Catherine taught her the ways of the highest, the ways of the Lord. And then the story goes, as she grew up, she was a fantastic scholar. She could read the biblical languages and 
had huge portions memorized even at such a young age. Now back to when she took the throne, Mary, who was the rightful queen and believed she was the rightful queen and she was able to get the popular support of the military and politicians and she was able to then dethrone and arrest Lady Jane in 1553 and she was then imprisoned in the Tower of London and Mary was persuaded by her Catholic spiritual advisers not to execute her but to give her a chance to convert back to Catholicism and that saves her from having to execute Lady Jane who was a popular young queen and an opportunity to come back to the Catholic faith. Of course, they could not persuade her to come back to the Catholic faith. Lady Jane spent her last hours in prison writing letters to her family, including one to her, or one of forgiveness to her imprisoned father. It was her mother and father who had sort of pushed this whole thing to happen. Listen to what she wrote. She said, To me there is nothing that can be more welcome than from this veil of misery to aspire to that heavenly throne of all joy and pleasure with Christ my Saviour. She's in the Tower of London. She knows the chopping block is pretty close, and she's writing that. She then sent her Greek New Testament. Yes, she had a Greek New Testament. Pretty amazing at this time in history. She sent it to her sister Catherine, and in it she wrote this. Quote, This is more precious than stones. It is the book of the Lord. It shall lead you to the path of eternal joy. It shall teach you to live and learn you to die. Follow the steps of your master, Christ and take up your cross and lay your sins on his back. It's that little phrase, this book will teach you to live and it will also learn you to die. And that just really echoes the sentiments of the gospel, I find, and a young lady who knew that she was probably close to meeting her Lord at this time. Then early Monday, the 12th of February, 1554, Jane watched from her window in, in the Tower of London as her husband was taken away to be publicly executed on Tower Hill. And then a little while later, she saw the cart bearing his body and head return before she herself was led out to the execution on Tower Green. She was allowed to give a short uh, message as they, as they were in those times. And she said this, I pray you all, good Christian people, to bear me witness that I die a true Christian woman, that I do look to be saved by no other means but only by the mercy of God in the blood of his only son, Jesus Christ. And then, and this is the connection with Psalm 51, she then knelt, raising her hands. She recited the entirety of Psalm 51 by memory, which begins with those famous words, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Can you imagine that scene, how powerful that must have been? A young 16-year-old girl about to be executed, and what fascinates me about this is it's that scripture that she chose. Of all the scriptures you could have chosen, she chose Psalm 51 to say right before her execution. She then, after that, she gave her gloves and her prayer book to the tower guard. She said that she forgave the executioner, which was, again, commonplace. She was blindfolded. Her head was placed on the block. With her final words, she said, Lord, into thy hands I commend thy spirit. And then the axe came, off, came down. In one swoop, her head came off and she was in the presence of the Lord. That was a woman who refused to reject the word of God. That was a woman who knew that she was a sinner. I think her, her choice of reading Psalm 51, pleading for the mercy of God, confessing sin at that final moment, proves that. And I think we all need to have that same spirit. It's one of the lessons of this psalm. But she is by far uh, not the only person in history who this psalm has ministered to. The missionary William Carey, Many of you know him, he's the father of modern missions. At one time when he was very close to death with a, with a dangerous illness, it was asked of him, if this sickness should prove fatal, what passage would you select as the text for your funeral sermon? And he replied, I feel that such a poor and sinful creature is unworthy to have anything said about him. But if a funeral sermon must be preached, let it be from the words, have mercy upon me, O God according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Again, we just see, uh, it's sort of, the closer you walk with the Lord, we always say that the more you realize how much of a sinner you are, which means the more you are likely to really plead and throw yourself upon the mercy of God. And that's what I believe Psalm 51 teaches us, which is why I believe it resonates throughout history so much. 
And because of that, we do well to pay attention to its message. Even today, whether it's in Judaism or Orthodox circles or Catholic circles, Psalm 51 is heavily featured in the liturgy of these churches at all times of the year. Now, I'm going to share with you a few more interesting historical things because the psalm is just so woven into the fabric of Christianity. The first verse in Latin, this psalm, well, the first verse particularly, but this psalm came to be known as the Miserere, and that's the, from the Latin, have mercy, that's where that comes from. And it was famously, uh, if you look in a hymn book, you'll often have the Miserere in some of the ancient songs. It was put to music and the words were sung. And one of the most famous compositions was by a composer called Gregorio Alighieri in the 17th century. If you just search the Miserere on Spotify, you'll find loads of choirs and composers putting this psalm to music. But this uh, 17th century composition was famous because at this time it was, a pri- it was composed by him specifically for the Vatican. And it was, pri- it was not published. No one else knew what it was. It was only allowed to be sung within the confines of St. Peter. And it was only sung once a year during the Easter services. And it was never published and no one else ever, ever sung it outside. Until in 1770, a young 14-year-old boy visited the Vatican on a pilgrimage, and he heard this performed, and that young boy's name was Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, a genius, basically, a musical prodigy. And at the age of 14, he heard that composition of the Miserere of Psalm 51. And when he returned to his lodgings, he reproduced it entirely from memory, and thus, shortly after, published it, and it became known to the world, and it remains a classic to this day. One other fascinating occurrence of Psalm 51 in England is it actually became part of English common law. The Misery, or verse 1, became popularly known as the neck verse. Now let me explain that to you, because again, it's just a fascinating bit of history that we have here. To understand this, we need to look back at what was known in English common law at the time as the benefit of the clergy. This was really a part of English law from around the 12th century. It came in, and it lasted for quite a long time. Now, the benefit of the clergy, this was a a provision uh, by which clergymen could claim that they were outside the jurisdiction of secular courts, and instead all their, any matters of, of breaking the law or sin or whatever it may be, would be tried in an ecclesiastical court and under canon law, which was obviously, the idea was that was going to be more lenient, getting them to do penance and more merciful than the secular courts. Now, to plead the benefit of clergy, they had to do a test, and it was a literary test. And the test that was required was the defendant had to, had to read or recite The first verse of Psalm 51, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, in Latin. That was the test. And if you could do that, you could plead the benefit of the clergy. Now, of course, you can see this was open to much abuse, and it was abused many times. But it became so popular that even non-clergy who were able to memorize it, most of them probably completely illiterate, but they, memorize, they, they were able to hear and memorize this verse. And because of this, it became known as the neck verse. Because knowing this verse could quite literally save your neck, i.e. get you transferred to an ecclesiastical court where the sentence was more less likely to be hanging. In a secular court, hanging was very uh, commonplace at this time. So that is the neck verse. And this really stayed with us. Uh, until it was abolished in 1827 with the passing of the Criminal Law Act. So it stayed with us a long time. But what I find fascinating about this, if you think about it, medieval England, into the sort of Victorian England almost, right up to these times, you had people reciting the words of an ancient Hebrew king who was confessing his sin with Bathsheba from the times of ancient Israel. And that is still being used at this time for people who have sinned to plead mercy. And I just find that absolutely fascinating that the Word of God just reverberates throughout history in some of the most unusual ways that we would never expect. So that's Psalm 51. Let's get into it. It says, Be gracious to me, God, 
according to your faithfulness, according to the greatness of your compassions, wipe out my wrongdoings. And when it says gracious, some of your translations will have have mercy. That was the more classical one. Have mercy is the same thought here. Be gracious according to your mercy. That is the petition. David asks, be gracious, have, have mercy on me, is what he's saying there. And then the argument, he says, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Confession and forgiveness are both based upon the reality of God's grace. The grace of the Father provided and accepted the needful atonement. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ accomplished the work of propitiation. And the grace of the Holy Spirit enables us to pray for an interest in that atonement and it then reveals it to us and in all its freeness and sufficiency it reveals the fullness of God's grace to us, to an afflicted heart. One theologian put it like this. He says, The term loving-kindness seems literally to impart a confluence of streams to form one vast river. And is not this the view which faith takes of divine grace? A river deep and wide which is formed by a confluence of all the perfections of the Godhead. Omnipotence, omniscience, infinite justice and holiness all flow into this river of the water of life. I love that. We don't write like that anymore, but that's just a wonderful way to think about what we have here. And notice, just in these first three verses, the different terms we have for forgiveness. We have wipe away or blot out, it might read. This is really the metaphor that gives you the image of erasing something from a page, erasing something from a book. And then the next one is wash. So you have wipe away, blot out, and then you have wash. And this is sort of the ancient imagery of you know, a laundryman soaking and hanging out a garment, rinsing it clean of any stains. And then you have cleanse. This is actually the same word as purify in verse 7. And this is the metaphor really looking towards purification as you approach the altar. It's more concerned with the worship aspect there, participation in the worship aspect. But you put all these three things together, an erasing from the book, a cleansing from the stain, and then a purification ready for worship. And you get something of a composite of what you get in the benefits of being forgiven. It's quite amazing. And the wonderful act, and what does it say? According to the greatness of your compassion, some of the older translations will read, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. And let's be honest, we all need that multitude of mercies because we all have a multitude of sins. Against you and you only I have sinned. Let's, we're back in verse 4 now. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now what this really means, obviously, he's not saying he didn't do wrong by Uriah and Bathsheba. Of course he did. But more, his point here is that he's confessing his sins to the Lord at this point, And God, as the ultimate standard, is the one that we primarily sin against because sin is ultimately directed against God. He is the standard. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Now, verse 5, where it says there, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Uh, this is not really, as some commentators, medieval commentators particularly, have, have tried to argue from this that the, act, the sexual act that, that causes conception is actually sinful. Uh, that's just a complete misunderstanding and misapplication of what the point he's making here. What he is really doing is sort of in poetic language, he is emphasizing the depths that sin goes, that sin has in our lives. It goes beyond merely external acts and it actually penetrates right into our nature, the nature of fallen humanity. And then it says, purify me with hyssop. And again, the mentioning of hyssop here is very significant, significant imagery. Remember, this is David, they had the, the tabernacle at this time. Hyssop was a ceremonial plant. If you remember, back in the book of Exodus, this was the plant that had to apply the blood. And that's very significant. We're talking about confession, repentance, and forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sins, no remission of sins. Hyssop was used for that purpose. Let me read to you Exodus chapter 12, verse 21 and 22. At the Passover, the first Passover, or the, the, the tenth plague, then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, 
Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply it to the blood. Apply some of that blood to the lintel and the doorposts. You remember that story. It was the hyssop which they did that. And also in Numbers 19, verse 18, it was not only used to apply the blood, it was also used to sprinkle the cleansing water on the furnishings of the tabernacle. Numbers 19, verse 18. And a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent, on all the furnishings, on the persons who were there and on the one who touched the bone and on the one who was killed, the one who died naturally on the grave. So here we have this hyssop that evokes to the ancient community of Israel both the Passover, the blood of the lamb, and the cleansing by the water of the, of the, the priests, the purification of the house very much connected to the washing away, the blotting out, the cleansing and the purifying, and the act of forgiveness that we've talked about here. It even uses the term, wash me, verse 7, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Now that, again, that, that verse reminds us of the book of Isaiah, doesn't it? Isaiah 1, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall become, what? White as snow. You see the connection there. They are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. And we find this not only in the Old Testament, we find these connections in the New Testament too. We see both the blood aspect of forgiveness and the cleansing by the washing of water. Matthew 26, 28, for this is the blood of the new covenant which is being poured out for the remission of sins. And then in John 13, verse 10, you remember that story where Jesus said, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, otherwise he is completely clean. And he's obviously referring to the fact that once you are forgiven judicially by the blood of the Lamb, you will need that purification and cleansing by the washing of the water of the Word and forgiveness as we confess our sins in that more familial relationship that we have. Both of these aspects here, I believe, are being alluded to in this psalm. Let's go on to verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit, and then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Create in me a clean heart. And I like this. He doesn't say tidy up my old heart. You see, it's not good enough just to tidy up the old nature. This would be like the whitewashed tombs that we hear about in the Gospels, trying to look good on the outside. And don't think... Oh, I'm a, well, I'm truly born again. That's not going to happen to me. So easy to fall into that trap. We all have a tendency to fall into that trap where we seek to externally present the trappings of good Christian behavior because we're so focused on these sort of external acts of morality. We do that. It's so easy to have that sort of almost double life going on in the Christian life, in our existence sometimes. And it's very dangerous to be in that position. But we also, from the other side of the fence, don't we see that so quickly in someone else? Then we say, oh, well, they're a Christian, they're doing this. And so quick we are to judge, often in the Christian church. I think both of those elements gives us the propensity to act in the flesh. It's that old nature. David here is playing, give me a clean heart, create in me a clean heart, O God. He's looking for that supernatural work of regeneration. And I believe he's anticipating, in fact, the promise of the new covenant here. Ezekiel 36, 26, remember, what was one of the promises of the new covenant? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And this is basically what we have in the New Testament too. Remember that verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. Old things have passed away, new things have come the sovereign, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He also says back in Psalm 51, a clean heart, but renew a steadfast spirit. So this is renew. He's basically saying, return to me that original strength and desire that I had to serve you wholeheartedly. And again, remember the context. This is on the back end of deep sin. You remember those times in your life, where your, your Christian life, where you just are reading the Bible, everything seems to just be, you, you're finding it all amazing. And then you get off the mountaintop and you fall down into the valley and you end up getting dirty in the mud. We've looked at that in the Psalms. And 
that's where he is. And there he's coming to the Lord, pleading his mercy, pleading for those sins to be washed away. And now he's saying, give me that heart again. Renew that spirit that I once had. And this is, again, such a good model for us today because we undoubtedly are going to have those times where we fall from the mountaintops into the valleys and then we have to know that all we can do is plead the mercy of God and we ask him to create in us that steadfast spirit, renew it in us, return us to the joy of our salvation, help us to to look at our first love again in that new and fresh way. This is a work of the spirit, but it is a work that I believe the Lord will always do in us when we ask to him and confess our sins. And the real point here is that when you have these desires, these holy desires that we have, even if they are marred, you've been off track for a while, you need to translate those desires into actual prayer. This is what David is doing here. He's been in the, in the mud for a long time now before he's come to confess the, these deep sins, and he's pleading in prayer. And then he says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. It's an unusual verse. A lot of people make a very sort of over-the-top arguments about losing your salvation and all these sorts of things. Again, ignore that. That's not the context of this prayer here. Really, what David is probably thinking is back to his history when it was him and Saul and they were having this cat-and-mouse chase. But you remember in 1 Samuel 16, he, he had this experience when the anointing, it said, it, you know, it left, the spirit left, it departed from Saul and came on to David. And he's basically saying... You know, now I'm the king and I've fallen into sin, just like Saul fell into sin and I saw the spirit depart. I don't want that to happen to me. So that is clearly, to me, as far as I'm concerned, what the context of this is. So you don't want to get uh, too, too far into that. If you wanted to make an application, I would say this is obviously the spirit's empowerment for service. Uniquely, it was for the kingly service of David, but more broadly, we could apply that to, to any Israelite or, or Christian in our own sense, Spirit's empowerment for service. Now, we don't have, you know, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We don't have the understanding that the Lord would actually take that away from us in that sense. The new covenant is different. But the principle of being empowered for service by the Spirit, sin can still quench the Spirit to do those things. And then he says, uh, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Now, many months, or I think about a year, in fact, had passed from the episode with Uriah and Bathsheba to this psalm of confession. And during those periods, it's pretty likely that David would have struggled to find joy in the midst of spiritual defeat. If you've ever been in that situation where you've fallen into those sins, and you're just not coming to the Lord, and you just feel like you can't have that victory for whatever reasons, it can rob you of your joy. You will, if you haven't experienced it, you will experience it at some point. All I would say is that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Remember, we, we looked at that in the last Psalms. But David was in this position here, so part of his prayer is not only for a clean heart, not only for a renewed and steadfast spirit, he wants that joy again to be in that beautiful family environment with his God where he's his son and they are communicating and it's just a joyful time to serve and love and praise and worship the Lord. When we're in that muddy area and we've lost the joy of our salvation, we're ripe for the devil to sit on our shoulder and whisper to us, well, that's it, you've had your peak. Are you sure this Christianity is all it's cracked up to be? It worked for you for once, but now you've fallen into sin Yeah, you're in a bad spiritual place now. We hear that term, don't we? A bad spiritual place. Be very careful when you use that term. You may have unintendedly absorbed some of the lies because you do not have a conduct-based relationship in the new covenant sense. Yes, we need to confess and do all these things, but just be careful how far you fall into that trap because it's hard to live in victory when you've got unconfessed sin, But the very thing that we need to do is bring it to the Lord. We need to get that hyssop branch out, metaphorically speaking, and apply the blood of the Lamb. Sin can kill our joy, but the Lord forgives, cleanses, washes away, blotting out, purifies. This is our God. Verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not 
despise. So blood guiltness. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. Uh, context would indicate that he's referring to the act of Uriah's death that he was responsible for. He knew, basically, that when guilt had been cleansed, thinking back to the hyssop by the blood and by the washing of the water, by the word, forgiveness, the mercy of God, only then would he be in that position where he could once again sing praises to the Lord. He says, deliver me from this God of my salvation and then my tongue will sing joyfully of your righteousness. Open my lips. You can tell David, he's got a worshipping heart here. Okay, he, he fell, but his heart, he, that's why he's described as the, the man after God's own heart, because he wants his lips to be open from praise, but he just needs this deliverance, this forgiveness, this mercy poured into his life from the Lord. Then it, this, this verse that a lot of people struggle with, but you find this theme throughout in the New Testament, you do not delight in sacrifice. And a lot of people think, but the Lord obviously was the one who had initiated the sacrificial system as the way that he wanted the Israelites to 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 be in their worship, their corporate worship and individual worship. So why does it say it's not important? Again, that's not the issue that's really going on here. What the psalmist David is getting at here is that the proof of a humble and contrite, repentant heart, and then one that is purely, truly forgiven by the mercy of God, is that that will produce a change of heart attitude. This is what David was praying for, that clean heart. It doesn't, and it will not just increase an obedience to external rituals, going through the motions of offering sacrifice. We see the kings of Israel doing that many times, and we know their hearts were rotten to the core, some of them. They did evil in the sight of the Lord, even though they may have done this. The point is that the Lord wants the heart to be honest. And you, cannot, you, know, you can't fake that. You maybe have to fake it with people around you, You may think so, but you cannot fake that with the Lord. And I believe that's what David's getting at here. And again, he's drawing on his history. Let me read to you 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Remember, right back when Saul, uh, sorry, the prophet Samuel was anointing the sons of Jesse, or David, or looking at the, remember 1 Samuel 16, 7. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God does not see as man sees Since man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, the Lord can look. We can't fool the Lord. Verse uh, verse 18. By your favour, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. So David ends now this psalm. And sort of a lot of commentators struggle with why he suddenly flips from this very personal confession of sin to suddenly talking about the nation again. But there's a definite connection there. Remember, it's maybe slightly different for us, but he was the king. He represented that nation. With him, the nation rose or fell in some respects. And he knew that his sin reflected badly on the nation. It was, he was, a, it was a failing as their king. And he asked for God's favor on Jerusalem and not God's judgment. He was pleading his mercy as a nation. He was once again taking that role and doing what a true king should do with true repentance and forgiveness. And then notice again, what does it say? It comes back to the issue of sacrifice. You see, so it's not that God doesn't like the sacrificial system that he instituted. Of course he does. It teaches and points ultimately to the the true sacrifice of Christ. But that was how he, he wanted them to obey him. But it had to be done in the right heart. And now that we've gone through this process of forgiveness, repentance, and washing, and cleansing, and, and restoring, renewing, new heart, we're back to this stage. He says, then the sacrifices will be good. They'll be overflowing with that meaning and significance to the nation of Israel once again. That is Psalm 51. It's such a powerful psalm. I hope you can see uh, why it's reverberated through history with so many saints and myself and for anyone who's had those times of confession, Psalm 51 is a place where you can spend and have that open on your laps. Let's move straight into Psalm 52. For the choir director, a masculine of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Again here, we're given the historical context. This is from 1 Samuel 21 and 22. Remember the story. David was hiding from Saul at this point, and he fled to the house of the Lord in in Nob, which was where the tabernacle was at that time, and he was hiding with the priests. There was a man there called Doeg, an Edomite, 
who saw him there and basically ended up going and telling Saul. And the story goes, it basically ends that Doeg was, was told to slaughter. He ended up slaughtering 85 priests of the Lord at this event. We see in this psalm a condemnation of wicked character epitomized by Doeg the Edomite. It's not those who fall to sin like we'd seen just with David, but then want to come back to the Lord. This is an arrogant, wicked man who boasts in evil. We're going to see that now. Let's look at verse 1. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, O worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right, Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. And notice immediately in the first verse this sort of contrast that is set up. This evil man, why are you boasting, O mighty man? That's said sarcastically. You are boasting in that which will ultimately spell your destruction, bring your own judgment and seal your fate, your wickedness, as opposed to the the second half of verse 1, the loving kindness of God that endures all day long. What it's basically saying there is you should be boasting in the loving kindness of God because God is eternal, his loving kindness will never end. You in your wickedness will come to a very abrupt end. And notice again, as we see so often in the Psalms, the, the speech is emphasized as something that is so telling of a person's character, so important and so dangerous at the same time. This is, it says, your tongue devises destruction. This is calculated acts of deceit and treachery of a man who takes joy in lying and evil speech. And again, I believe Jesus amplifies why speech is so important in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, verse 16. Listen to Jesus' words. Jesus said, are you still also lacking in understanding? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and those things defile the person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, acts of adultery, other immoral sexual acts, thefts, false testimonies, and slanderous statements. Doeg the Edomite. This is exactly the sort of thing he's talking about here. Doeg's speech... His lies, his treachery indicated that he had a rotten heart inside. He was wicked. He had rejected God. And we all know you can ruin your witness very quickly with your tongue, probably quicker than anything else with your tongue. You can uh, ruin your witness to the Lord. And that is a lesson for us all in how we speak when we're behind closed doors, how we speak when we're in our own Christian groups, how we type when we're engaging in different things on the internet. All of these things are speech, whether it's verbal or written, it doesn't matter. These things reflect and people make judgments and they do reflect what's in our heart. And that's something that the Lord will work out in you. He will convict you of different things at different times if you are continually seeking him. Let's look at verse five. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living, Selah. The righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him, saying, Behold, the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. So here we see the destiny of the wicked. And make no doubt about it, God will judge. Those who do not plead, those who do not do Psalm 51, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Those who have rejected God, who take glory and boast in their wickedness and their evil ways, they will meet the judge of all the earth. They will not get away with anything, and their boasting will come to a frightful end. This is, it says here in the psalm, this will almost be like an object lesson. He's kind of writing here. He says, look at the destiny of those who do not make God their refuge. Again, think how many times we've encountered that theme in the psalms, fleeing to God as our refuge, our strong tower, our place of comfort, security, and help, forgiveness, mercy, the fount of loving kindness, all of these things. If you don't abide yourself with them, it's because you don't want to. You end up putting your trust in something else, in yourself, in your army, in strengths. The kings of Israel made this uh, mistake many times. In Doeg's case, it was his own arrogance, his proud stature. He was blinded by his evil desire. He wanted probably political gain when he told King Saul of where David was. 
And then also there is significance in the act that he did, how quick he was to slay the priests of God in the house of God. This indicates something to us. He had no regard for the worship of God, for the things of God, for the places of God, or the people of God. No regard, slaughtered them. That is the wicked man that the psalmist is talking about. He will meet the judge. Verse 8, but as for me, the contrast now, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. I will give you thanks forever because you have done it, and I will wait on your name, for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. So we have, we've had the, the, the end, the destiny of the wicked. Now he contrasts that with himself, uh, or, or you could say with the, with the righteous. And the righteous is not because of their good people. The righteous is those, hopefully we, we get it from this point, who have thrown themselves onto the mercy of God, who have been purified with the hyssop, with the blood of the lamb, who have been washed, forgiven, restored, redeemed. Those are the righteous. All the works of the sovereign grace of God. Those who are trusting in the mercy and loving kindness of God. It says they'll be like an olive tree in the house of God. Olive trees are so common in Israel. They're the, one of the most enduring trees. They last for such a long time. Their roots go so deep. They're so fruitful in the olives that they produce. And again, there's a bit of background here. The town of Nob, which was the location of the tabernacle where this event and this slaughter happened with Doeg, this was on the northern summit of the Mount of Olives, which obviously derives its name from all the olives trees that were on it at this time. So there's a sort of bit of play going on there. And David says, but he doesn't just say he's like an olive tree. He says he's like an olive tree, a green olive tree, in the house of God. So he's placing this olive tree, if you could imagine the courtyard of the tabernacle, he's placing this olive tree in the courtyard of the tabernacle. Why is he doing that? What happened in the tabernacle? That was the place that God dwelt. It's symbolic of his nearness to God. And that should be where we all want to be, closer and closer and closer to the Lord in that relationship. This is basically someone who has made God their refuge. His destiny in that position, being in the tabernacle, the courts of the Lord as that fruitful olive tree, his destiny is to give thanks forever to the Lord. And if, is that not the destiny of the righteous? We will be forever with the Lord our tongues will forever sing his praises. We will never be bored of his character. We'll always be learning and just marveled by the glory of God. This is the destiny of the righteous. And that's why he's saying, why, evil man, are you boasting in your wickedness that does not last and will in fact seal your fate when you have available to you the loving kindness of the glorious God? That's the contrast here. Let's move straight into Psalm 53. It says, for the choir director, according to Mahaleth, a maskil of David, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, you may notice or remember that this, this, this psalm is almost identical to Psalm 14. It starts with exactly the same words, and except for a couple of verses, it's word for word identical. So we'll, we'll sort of look at it in chunks. Now, what most people tend to do is it's easy to just jump onto that phrase, there is no God. And what we do with this, living in the sort of 21st century era, we like to apply this to 20th century atheistic philosophies and ideologies, and we, we make an interpretation and an application based on that. I'm not against doing that. I think there's a time and there is a place for that, and it's a good application. However, I want us to remember the context, the historical context of the psalm here. This is written by an Israelite whose God is Yahweh, is the Lord, the one true God, Hashem. This was written to a culture, Israel and the wider ancient Near East, that was steeped in theistic worldviews. The concept of God and atheism was not the same as we would have in sort of, you know, post-Darwinian period of naturalistic atheism. This was very different. It, they'd always been theistic in that sense, in this regard. 
Different empires had different gods, different tribes had different gods. He's not so much referring to an intellectual category of people like we might reason in the post-Enlightenment age, someone who has looked at the evidence and using reason. He does not find the claims of a particular religious worldview sufficient. That's a different issue. And again, we can engage that. But what the psalmist is getting at here is really a moral way of life that shows disregard for the one God of Israel. And that manifests itself in acts of injustice and affects his conduct. In Old Testament language, this would be the enemies of God or the wicked that you see so often mentioned in the psalm. Think of Doeg the Edomite, the one who had no concern for the house of God, for the people of God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Or you could translate it, the fool lives as if there is no God. And we see this again. This is the principle that Jesus is getting at in John chapter 3, verse 20, where he says, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light so that his deeds will not be exposed. It's this moral quality of good and evil that is being emphasized here. He says they are corrupt. In Paul's language, in New Testament terminology, we would say these are those who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Because we know, Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So we have to be so careful to understand things within their context and go from that. In this language, uh, you see this actually in the, in the term fool here. The Hebrew word for fool is the term Nabal. Now you remember the story of Nabal. We've looked at it, 1 Samuel 25, and again, it relates back to an episode in David's life. Do you remember? David and his mighty men were hiding in the vineyards of Nabal and Abigail, and they asked, they sent some people to go and ask Nabal for food. And the text is very interesting. Notice just the details in the text here. When Nabal, whose name literally means fool, this is what he's referring to, what does it say? He rejects the, the, the request from David, and he says this, Who is David? or the son of Jesse. Who is David, or the son of Jesse? What does that say? He does not know God. We could put that into today's language. Similar to those who reject the ultimate son of Jesse. And then you remember the story, Abigail, who is a righteous woman, comes out and pleads, and she even says, he is a fool, like his name specifies. This is the same thing, really, that the psalmist is getting at when he said, the you know, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And then he says, no one does good, no one seeks God in this sense. Now, you have to understand this in the broader context of Scripture too. There are plenty of passages in the Bible that talk about people seeking God, and we're actually told to seek God in many ways. But this is talking about that there is no one who seeks God on their own. That is, without the grace manifested through God's different initiatives. And I'm talking about things like even just through the revelation of Israel as a light to the nations, the Torah, the preaching of the gospel, and ultimately the fulfillment and the revelation of his son. All acts of God's grace. The grace of God has appeared to all men in that respect. No one does good in the sense that it puts them into a righteous category. Remember, the contrast in Psalms and Proverbs is the wicked and the righteous. And it wasn't through good deeds that you got into the different category. That's the thing. That's what Paul is getting at in the book of Romans when he quotes this exact verse. Uh, he does it from, from Psalm 14, but same same. Same quotation, basically, in Romans 3, where he uses it to show that you can't get into that righteous category by some sort of good works. No one does good. That's what he's getting at here. We could go into that more. Let's, let's just move on for now. Verse 4. Have the workers of wickedness no knowledge, who eat up my people as though they ate bread, and have not called upon God? There they were in great fear, where no fear had been. For God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. You put them to shame because God had rejected them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. And when God restores his captive people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. So David now rhetorically asks, have these people no knowledge? Again, they eat up, they were in great fear, scattered the bones of those who were encamped around them. He's probably writing this as Israel was often sort of surrounded by enemies. They were fallen, those who are fallen and separated from God. Now, there's a fundamental difference. There's really only two races of humanity, those who call upon God and those who don't call upon God. We could say those who are fallen 
and separated from God and those who are redeemed, forgiven and back in relationship with God. They're the two races, really, that we only, the only two races we have on this earth, if I could say it like that. Now, this is a rather sort of bleak end. These Psalms have been quite heavy going, looking at the, the destiny of the wicked, but also emphasizing so highly the mercy and forgiveness that is available. But I love how he ends this in verse 6. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. Now, what's that a desire for? What's the salvation of Israel coming out of Zion? That's the Mashiach, that's the Messiah there. He's longing for the kingdom reign of the coming and promised Messiah. And this, in light of everything that we've just been through, that we know about David, that we've learned about David, that we've seen about the enemies of God, the righteous and the wicked, it all comes down to the coming of the king. And this is the same for us now. Everything we do, everything we experience, the good, the bads, the highs, the lows, the joys, the tribulations, the ups, the downs, everything that we go through in this life should be coloured by that future expectation of the coming of God's glorious kingdom to reign on this earth. That is the ultimate destiny. And we get to reign with him as part of his body, one of the promises of how much we are blessed in Messiah. Now that's the end of Psalm 53. And I would really just plead with you now, if you're here and you're not a believer, it's the first time you may have heard some of these things, but you know there are things in your life that you're ashamed of, that you're, you feel guilt over, I can tell you, quite frankly, there is not one that does good, in the sense that none of us measure up to the glory and righteousness that we would need to be able to live in relationship with God. Be like David. We know we've got sin on our heart, but God holds out by the loving kindness that he has that we've seen emphasized in Psalm 51. He holds out that offer of forgiveness to us. He wants us to pick up that hyssop, apply the blood of the ultimate sacrifice, the blood of the lamb that points to the blood of Jesus Christ who came to this earth to die for our sins that he could wash us, cleanse us, purify us and put us into that new relationship with him, create in us that clean heart, renew that steadfast spirit in us, return to us or give us that joy of salvation that we have of being in relationship with him and ultimately live the rest of our lives in relationship with him, longing and knowing that one day in the future our glorious king will come and he will set up his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the word of God. I thank you so much that you came to this earth, that you died for us, that you forgive us, Lord, that we can just confess our sins in repentance and you redeem us, Lord. What a blessing that is. May it never be considered common or light to us, doesn't matter how long we've been a Christian. And we pray, Lord, that you would just restore in us the joy of our salvation, renew us, Lord, in steadfast spirit, Open our mouths to just sing your praises, to declare the wondrous and mighty works of God until we see you one day face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.